Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and here with me, liable to burst into song unexpectedly at any moment, is my best friend and co-host, Patch. It's good to be here. See? See? I called, I told you guys. I told you that's what was going to happen, and better him than me, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to find out how that would go. You might want to go back to some of our previous musical episodes. I wonder if I might have tried and failed. <laughs> Aaron's it's not possible. Gonna be in a... Yeah, you're not going to be in a rock opera anytime soon where they sing all the time. <laughs> no, Patrick was in drama class. Patrick grew up doing, you know, singing at church and playing instruments and things of that nature. I like Spotify. Though that's the, that's the difference. <laughs> sing along, Aaron, is what it is. All right. Sing along, Aaron. I'm <laughs> yeah, I need I need a bouncing ball. <laughs> yeah. And an auto tune. Okay. Hey, no shame there. No. Well, the two of us are big, big, and I say big because. We absolutely love the musical genre, and we know that many people don't, but for us, it's one of our absolute favorite types of films, both stage productions, on the, the play, in on Broadway, or not on Broadway itself, because we both haven't gone to Broadway, but wherever Broadway comes to us <laughs> near our local areas, but also the film adaptations of said Broadway plays. And we are excited to be kicking off what could prove to be an awesome 2021 slate of musicals by talking about this new version of Lin-Manuel Miranda's first Broadway hit. Now, I found out something that was pretty interesting, Patrick, when I was writing this down, because I had to do all of the pre-production for the episode where I create the website posts and do all the notes and stuff. And so I kept typing in the heights over and over. And I paused and I looked at it real quick and I was like, am I spelling this wrong? And so I went back to that old, famous grammatical like adage or, you know, that rule, I before E except after C. This word, heights, breaks that rule, and that breaks my brain. Well, yes, it does. I before E except after C, something and something, as in neighbor and way, and way. Wait, what? really? There's more to yeah. it? <gasps> yeah, it's not just it's not just that. It's Really? And I can't remember the middle part, but it's I before E except after C, Except eating your curds and whey. Except when it's a, as in neighbor and way, but that doesn't work here either because it's heights, uh-huh. not hates. It's not hate. <laughs> something that we won't be saying on this podcast. So. No, we will not be but, saying the word hate on this. So I, I don't know. This might be inconclusive for me to to, to jump in, but I, I don't think it breaks the rule. Um, but it's definitely not an a sound. It's an i. Well, I have in my in my Twitter bio one of my like words that describes me as grammar nerd. So this stuff matters to me. Listeners, please someone come to me on Twitter or Facebook or somewhere on social media or just comment on this post on the website. I don't care. Find me somehow and explain to me why heights does not follow the stinking rule because grammar is supposed to be structured and organized and it doesn't I it, I can't abide with chaos. Chaos does not work for me, okay? I I need it to be, I need it to make sense, and then we can move forward. And so until it makes sense, that's like a minus one star for this movie because it's spelled weird. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. Well, enough of our 
banter, let's go ahead and get into the one word takeaways. Patrick, why don't you start us? Well, I, I, I actually summed it up with appreciation and Lin-Manuel, man, I'm going to say his name right. I promise I will. Lin-Manuel Miranda. Okay. I'll just that say good. that right there. I'm yep. just calling Lin for the rest you of the podcast. You can also say LMM. LMM. Yep. <laughs> you know, he is, he is to the whole musical genre what um, I think the modern musical is to its audience, essentially. So you've got this guy who I think has made himself famous through this Hamilton and, you know, seeing his fingerprint on the reimagined, I'm going to call it the reimagined Mary Poppins, not necessarily Mary Poppins Returns, but seeing his talent kind of put itself out there. And when I, when I watched In the Heights, I didn't realize that this was his first. So that was surprising to me. I didn't read a lot of stuff about it. I just want to go into it kind of blind, except for the couple of trailers that I saw. But what I really pulled from this is an appreciation for what I would call the modern musical. We've talked about this on the show before when we were talking about The Greatest Showman, that there's classic or more traditional musicals like Mary Poppins, like Bedknobs and Broomsticks, like God, uh, not God with the Wind, but The Sound of Music. And then we get into the more modern type of take. And I think what he has done with this is created somewhat, somewhat of a template for what the modern musical looks like to its audience. And I think it's what Pasek and Paul, I think, have taken ownership of with things like Dear Evan Hansen, which I absolutely adore, to provide this clever way of writing music where you're getting an appreciation for the way music is created, how it's not just rap or it's not just a clever way to sing lyrics, but it really does take the mold of traditional musicals and amplifies it. And so I think all of this was on full display throughout the entire production. And I'll tell you, Aaron, I've gotten to become a crotchety old man, especially when it comes to like movie runtimes. <laughs> so when I saw this is a two hour and 22 minute musical, I did have some hesitation because I was like, man, I love a good musical, but there's a reason why I don't love Mary Poppins like a lot of people do. And part of it is because it's almost three hours and it's difficult. Musicals are difficult to keep someone's attention, especially if you don't like the music. And I think that Miranda did that effectively for me. Like I really enjoyed most of everything I, I watched. It did seem a little long for me. The second half, I think, kind of dragged a little bit more than the first, but it wasn't something like I felt bored, like I was checking my phone every five minutes. I really did feel engaged with it. And more than anything else, it was just so much fun to watch. If anything comes from this, it's that you're getting more entertainment value from this and it's different than you would see as a stage production. And I know that you've, you and I have talked about this maybe offline about how we'd love to see more stage productions on the big screen of certain musicals. But I almost want to push back a little bit on that and say I kind of like the fact that filmmakers are using sets, they're using locations 
to amplify their stories. And I think a movie like In the Heights, a production like In the Heights, does well as an on-screen adaptation with real scenes and special effects and things like that. Because there were some really cool things that I don't know that they could have been done on a stage. Um, haven't seen the stage production, obviously, but more than anything else, I think that's what I appreciated is that you pack so much into this you know, two and a half hours and it's just great stuff. And I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Enjoyed is an, a good word for it because it is just a joyous movie. And that, you know, my one word takeaway, I guess, would be infectious because I just felt like it seeped into my veins and really filled me up and infected me in a way that I needed. And I needed that feeling in many different ways for going back to the movies. Now, I had a different kind of experience going back to the movies for a press screening of A Quiet Place Part 2, right? Which was a press-only screening, so it was quieter, which is perfect because you've got, you know, this horror movie with great sound going on. But this, we had audience members. We had the public with us. And so I got to see it in a theater with a lot of people, essentially. And it's so much better to have that collective sound of excitement and happiness. And just you can just feel the energy in the room along with the energy that you're seeing on screen it coincides. And when you have this sound and, and color bursting and the incredible dancing and a story about dreams and romances and friendships and, you know, parental love. There's just, there's so much packed into this story that it made me feel better about the world for a second, <laughs> even amidst the less than ideal circumstances for the characters on screen in this setting at that time, right? Because it's definitely cr commenting on a very real racial issue for a group of people living in this community that is still an issue at parts of the world um, in parts of the country, I should say um, for sure. And so, but, it, but it just, it does so in a way that makes you appreciate to use your word, the way that you get to learn about this community and how it operates, especially for me. Like I can see how if I was Latino I might appreciate this for representing me on screen and showing pieces of how my culture and community operates that people don't necessarily know. And I'm that person that doesn't necessarily know. So for me, I appreciate that I get to learn about that, right? Because I've never seen that. I've, you know, all I know is, oh, a bodega is a grocery store. That's what I know. But I now understand a little more about what that is and what that means and how that works in the context of this community. So everything about it was infectious to me. I just absolutely loved and enjoyed the experience with my daughter. And then even going home and getting to record our spoiler free podcast episode, our FF plus with her about this one, it was a blast. So I'll leave it there for now. That's our one more takeaways. This is our spoiler warning. So if you haven't seen the film or the musical and you don't want to know what happens, don't want to know how it ends and you want to be surprised, by all means, please go check it out now and then come back and listen to the podcast. I would definitely say it's worth your money to go see it in a theater if you're comfortable with that. By all means, do that. You're going to have a better experience 
and you're going to help support the film with your dollar and tell them to make more movies like this because that's what it needs. If you can't do that or you don't want to do that, it's fine. You can also watch it on HBO Max streaming. I believe I learned today, actually, Patrick, that HBO Max has a new $10 tier for like people who don't want to de- or don't mind dealing with ads. And so it's 10 versus 15. I don't think you can watch this with the $10 tier is what I was seeing. People were being frustrated. Like you have to have the the full HBO Max $15, which whatever. I mean, for one one ticket, you could get HBO Max for a month and you could watch this a dozen times. So do that. Or instead. a dozen movies at least once, including the Snyder Cut, by the way. You know, you, just well, saying. that might take up your whole month. Yeah, between, the, between this and the Snyder Cut, you're pretty much – actually, all the movies. Have you – like, Kong is really long, too? Like, I don't know what's mm-hmm. going on, man. Like, okay. Anyway. the max of HBO is. HBO max is the – It's the length. Max. You're yeah. right. That's it. Nothing under two hours. Not allowed. Well, the first thing I want to talk about is perfectly aligned here in our notes because it piggybacks off of your one-word takeaway and what you were talking about. I was starting to kind of, like, want to wave at you to, like, shut up and save it. So – We'll see if you want to rehash some of the things or expand upon them. But I want to talk about what makes a great movie musical. And you really hit on some of those things, which is the way in which we translate that experience from stage to film. And and I was talking about how we both love both versions, right? But they are different. They are different experiences. And one of the things about the length of the film, for me, I didn't mind because – I did go into it and note, I was like, oh, wow, two and a half hours, That that's going to be a little bit long. And then I stepped back and I said, well, you know, most musical stage productions are three hours-ish with an intermission of about 20 minutes or so, maybe 30 tops. So this is right in line with what you would expect while factoring in some pretty quick set changes along the way. Uh, and I liked that. So I we got to see the full experience. And so for me... Part of what makes a great movie musical depends on if it's an adaptation or not. If you're adapting something, I want you to keep the story. So most of the story is intact. I was reading about this because we haven't got a chance, either one of us, to see the stage production of this. They did make some changes to like the ending, but they're very small little detail changes. They're not massive changes, but they kept it intact and they told the whole thing. They didn't truncate and cut out big sections of plot which I appreciate that to me is part of what makes it great. Like I want the whole story. I don't want your condensed version of your, of your story because you're trying to put it on film and make it, make it smaller. I also want to have the amazingness uh, that you get, the feeling that you get from watching set changes and real costumes in person. And and the way that the creation of an in-person stage musical production is done can be absolutely mind-blowing like when you i remember watching aladdin for was the one that of all the ones that really shocked me the most and i was just blown out of the water by the production aspect of that of that stage musical but i want to feel that on your screen movie musical like i need the color and the 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 vibrance or whatever the case may be it's one of the things i'm curious about dear evan hansen honestly because i feel like it's just gonna feel like a movie with songs because there's not really the setting does not necessarily lend itself to anything bombastic (laughs) you know what i mean 
And so it'll be interesting to see how they do that. Maybe they bring in some animated sections. They did that in this film. There's some animation that is, you know, very lightly inter- inter- interested in there or interspersed in there. There's a little bit of CGI, kind of like they do in La La Land, literally copying La La Land in a couple places in this movie. That's right. That's fine. You can copy the goat. It's okay. So I think that you need that bombastic, like, nature of a visual aspect to it. Greatest Showman right? It's eye-catching. It's eye-popping. It, it's it's something that visually connects with the audience member as well as the auditory nature of the songs that you're watching. That Because you're going to usually see this a lot closer. When you're watching a stage musical, most people aren't going to be up close to it. That's just the facts. Like You can't see the details of the stage because it's in a big auditorium <laughs> and Unless you're paying like the absolute biggest of bucks <laughs> to sit down there by the orchestra, you ain't going to see everything. But on a movie screen or a theater screen, you get to see all this this little detail, which I absolutely love. And then I think the other thing, Patrick, for me, what makes it top tier, great music, movie musical, I need for, well, two things. I need pacing to be right and to not dip in a way that, but that would be the true of almost any movie. But with musicals, you know, you're really following a, a song by song by song pattern, and I can't have it dip um, in the musical numbers. And then I also need to want to walk away singing those songs. And for me, that was one of the few places that this movie held was held back from my personal like absolute greatness. Is because when Ashlyn and I left Patrick, we didn't have a song in our head that was catchy in a way that made us remember the lyrics and the chorus because they were repeatable and sing it on the way home. So I'm not saying that's a knock on the movie. And, and I actually got real frustrated because I said something like this on Twitter and I had somebody come at me and to accuse me of racial bias because I didn't understand the music, which is ridiculous because I can sing Hamilton songs all day long and I love singing Hamilton songs. And the moment I saw Hamilton, every single one of those lyrics was lodged in my brain. That did not happy, happen with the way that the storytelling works through the songs in this film. And they're phenomenal. It makes a great film. It works wonderfully. But it's not the kind of songs that I found myself generally wanting to sing when I got home. And so for me, that was a bit of a, the greatest of great are going to have that about them. Uh, and that's what just, just puts it in. Like, I mean, I mean, it's ever so small of a tier below, but like, that's what held it back for me. Yeah. I, I, I would agree in terms of memorable lyrics for me though, it'd be more like memorable numbers. And I think that goes back to the advantage. So I would say this, Watching a musical play out on stage, what you gain in that is the music. I don't remember a lot of the choreography from Dear Evan Hansen when we went to go see it a couple of years ago, but I loved the music. And for you and I, we fell in love with the soundtrack before even seeing the music. That's, that's right. No, visual and, had nothing to do with it at all. And so, And so hearing it in context – stitched together with these narrative scenes of of just script writing really gave us context for enjoying these 
songs. And I remember when we were driving home, we were stuck in, you know, what parking lot traffic for like an hour. We're like, well, let's just queue up Dear Evan Hansen. And there was this fantastic, like, re-understanding of the story. Oh, that's what she was singing about when she was singing this. Or that's what he was singing about when he was singing that. And I look at In the Heights, and I see it as a successful musical in that it tells a complete story. We have a beginning, we have a middle, we have an end. And the music and the lyrics are phenomenal. But the advantage and subsequently a disadvantage of a movie musical is that you're really captured by the visuals. You're putting yourself in the middle of a theater, if you're seeing it on the big screen, or in your living room, and you're watching this thing play out. You have no connection to these characters. You're not hearing a live voice singing back at you. And so your senses are really about the visual at that point, as they should be for a, for a musical or for a, for a movie in general. And this is what we get with every Disney movie that comes out pretty much. Every Disney movie is a musical because it's people talking or insects talking or inanimate objects talking and then they sing. Not for every Disney movie, but we've sort of gotten used to that. And to what you said earlier about this kind of super, not supernatural, but really this kind of bombasticness that you speak of is a great component of a an adapted musical because it allows for that component of the craziness of what a musical is anyway to kind of shine. I mean, you go into a musical, you're already suspending your disbelief when a guy starts breaking out in song. <laughs> and to add those kind of visual elements to it in a real world setting just really takes that to the next level, especially when it's live action. I mean, we kind of accept it with animation and animated movies, but when we see it play out in a movie like In the Heights, it just adds to that visual appeal. And that's what I enjoyed more than anything else, particularly the first act. The, there was vibrancy to it. Like when you got into New York and you got into Washington Heights as it panned in, you see the brightness of the city. And it's almost intentional because the climax of Act One essentially was the blackout. <laughs> and so it goes dark. And so all that color goes away. And I think that you miss that or you can miss that on a stage production because you're then at the mercy of the people designing the sets and having to move them back and forth and having to make sure that if you're going to make a bright set, you've got to make sure the lighting's right. You've got to make sure the, the paint is the right color. Whereas with a movie adaptation using real places, it's a different kind of technique. And I think it just amplifies those things even more. And that's what I enjoy about it. That's what I'm excited about with, with Dear Evan Hansen. I don't want to see a stage production of it. I've seen that. I loved it. I want to see high school kids singing in high school because I love movies that take place in high school. Well, and good I, luck on the high school part. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see 35-year-old men singing as high school kids, Patrick. I know. I'm Again, and I will take my I'm just playing. Of disbelief to the next level and just say, you know what? I, I don't care either. I'm just making fun of the people that do. I know. It's it's just, it is what it is. And my wife and I are going through 90210 right now. Uh, and we're doing that same thing. We're like, I think these people are like in their 30s. And they're talking, you know, they're, they're high school kids. But to answer your question, I think for me, what makes a great movie musical 
is balance, not being overly sung or overly talked. And I think being able to bring me into that story without having me get confused and kind of, okay, is this the next number? What's happening? And this is where In the Heights shine for me. It blended so well. You have, in a lot of ways, it reminded me a lot of West Side Story because there were these, there was this dissonance in singing, dissonance in talking. You had a scene that you had two people singing and then it was coupled with this group of people singing above them in a different kind of rhythm and melody. That's a musical. You're not just singing because you're happy. You're singing and you're using technical aspects like harmony and pitch and rhythm and things like that and great choreography. And In the Heights was just like this amplified version of what makes a great movie musical. And the length of it, completely justified. Just like with you, not having songs that you're walking away singing afterwards, for me, the length is just it's it's too long for me it's it's not even if i get it i understand it i need something shorter i need something a little bit more concise it didn't feel bloated it was just long and i just said okay well i'm i'm good with this and when i'm ready to kind of sit down and watch a long musical again it will probably be one of those that i watch yeah exactly and i think that's the pacing part right is you're fine with the two and a half hours if you don't feel it, if you do feel it a little bit. And I felt it a little bit the first time I watched it, Patrick, in the theater. And I, I'll tell you the second watch today, although it was a little broken up, but I didn't feel it nearly as much because I do think this movie has a phenomenal sense of balance between the songs, the lyrical storytelling, which I adore in musicals. I love both. I love musicals that are very like La La Land, right? Where your songs are not necessarily speaking out plot. But I also love musicals like this that are traditional where they are. The plot is unveiling itself as the song goes through. And the musical style is mixing up as it goes. And, and I really enjoyed that. And I thought it was balanced so well with the parts where they did have just, just straight narrative uh, in there. So, And it's way better than West Side Story. <laughs> But that's a different fight. <laughs> I just, I'm going to enrage you. Um, uh, but yeah, and West Side Story, you know, that's going to be another one. So that's on our list of what makes 2021 a great musical year. We have Dear Evan Hansen. We have West Side Story. We have, uh, there's a couple other ones that I can't recall the names of that are coming out in the fall as well. Anywho, moving on. So Lin-Manuel Miranda has a style. And it's clearly evident between this and Hamilton, I found it interesting that you didn't know that going into this one. Lots of comments online. People are like, oh my gosh, this sounds so much like Hamilton. He just copied what he did in Hamilton. And of course, many people are like, uh, well, no, actually he's copied in Hamilton what he did in, in the Heights. My question is, is that a problem or can it become a problem? Can it take away from the music if it sounds too similar? And the things I wanted to mention, so the rap part is definitely in there. There are a few numbers, though, that it is extremely, extremely Hamilton-esque. Like, I felt like those numbers with different lyrics were in Hamilton. There's a song that Vanessa sings early on 
where she's describing her situation. It's called It Won't Be Long Now. And it's the one where she's talking about trying to, you know, get her apartment in upscale, upside New York or wherever it is. She's trying to get her new apartment and she's going to be this fashion designer. And, and she ultimately ends up back in the salon at the end of this this song. That with her singing it and I, she sounds like Eliza, like it literally the hook of that song sounds exactly like Eliza singing a song in Hamilton, the notes that she hits. And it was distracting to me because it sounded so much like that song in Hamilton that I was like, okay, wait, which movie and which song am I actually listening to? And there's a couple parts in this in rap sections that does something very similar to that. There's a part of 96,000, which has all kinds of different musical beats and styles within that one song, which is absolutely sick. But one of the sections like of the rap sections, when it goes, it sounds a lot like something in Hamilton. And then, of course... When Miranda is singing his song as Mr. Paraguino or Paragua, Paraguero man, his song is very Hamilton-esque too. And so I guess my question, like, I didn't mind it, but I did see some complaints from people about it being so similar that it was distracting to them. And I just wondered, like, how you felt about that. And do you think that there's an issue with sameness or, you know... Are good artists versatile by default, or or should they be versatile? I should say. I would probably put it in the same category as an actor who's typecast and who's okay with that. Keanu Reeves is a great example. I'd love Keanu Reeves and the things that he's in because of who he is as an actor and what he brings to the table. You know what you're getting with that. You can say the same thing about writers. Now, writers, I think, have a little bit more diversity because they're writing about different genres. So you take an Aaron Sorkin. You're not getting the same dialogue, but you're getting that rhythm. You're getting the walk and talk. You're getting a lot of musicality in the things that he writes as a screenwriter. Christopher Nolan, from a director standpoint, you know you're probably going to get something that plays with time. You're probably going to get something that's a little bit cerebral sci-fi or not. But you get elements of a directorial style, a writing style, an acting style with particular people. And I don't think that that necessarily needs to be a knock for someone like Miranda who's doing things from a music musical standpoint and saying, okay, look, this is who I am. This is the style that I've adopted. I do think it becomes problematic when you get to a place of hearing the same thing over and over again. So you can create a style in a musical that doesn't necessarily borrow from its predecessor. We look at one of our, our favorite composers, Hans Zimmer. Obviously, he takes things from Gladiator and puts it into Pirates of the Caribbean. And for me, that feels like a little bit of a nugget. But he doesn't make an entire score of one movie and puts it into another. And I think that's where, from a musical standpoint, when, you, when you're hearing similar things when you're intertwining musicals that sound similar because you're using similar melodies. That's when I think it can get a little sketchy because now you're taking away from the impact of what you heard first. So if you're hearing in the Heights first, you're going to say, Oh man, Hamilton just completely ripped off that number. Well, you're allowed to because you're Lin-Manuel Miranda. So you're okay with that. But if you are, 
appreciating one musical because of its originality or because of its freshness if you're hearing too much similarity in terms of melody specifically. I think that's when it can get kind of challenging because now you're starting to confuse your musicals and then you're just like, well, I just like Lin-Manuel Miranda and that's fine. And if you like his stuff, then you may not care that his next musical is going to borrow heavily from In the Heights or Hamilton. I think what we, what we like, what I like about Lin-Manuel Miranda is that he is able to play with rhythm, play with lyrics using rap and that type of in a way that is entertaining and fun. And he tackles, I guess you could say, subject matter that is unfamiliar to people. Like we know history. We know the story of Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, but he turns it on its head and puts an entire cast of POCs at the forefront and doesn't really, you know, he intentionally does that. Same thing within the Heights. This is not about a modern American white story. It's clearly about a barrio in Washington Heights and about a Dominican heritage that finds itself in the middle of New York and he peppers it with this idea of going after your dreams. And so I think that's what I can appreciate about his music is that I know that I'm getting those things. Where it pro would probably start falling off is if his music specifically starts sounding similar in terms of its melodies, in terms of its rhythms, when I do start intertwining, oh, yeah, that's just Hamilton 2.0, just change out the lyrics. You know, it's fine to do. It's your musical. It's your music and lyrics. But I do think it can kind of dissipate some of the appreciation that you have for previous entries. So if I fell in love with In the Heights and then I hear Hamilton bringing some more of those similarities and then I hear another musical that's borrowing again, at some point I'll probably go, okay, I'll just watch In the Heights and get my Manuel Miranda fix. And, you know, Hamilton will just be okay. And then slowly <laughs> any you know, subsequent entries are going to be like, yeah, that was fine. It was typical, Lynn. We'll just move forward. So I think that's probably the downfall is if your stuff sounds too similar, particularly in melody and whatnot, you're probably going to start creating more of an echo chamber of maybe a, a just a one-dimensional style. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that that's where it'll be interesting to see what he does next and if it does follow in this same style. And it And the thing is, to me, the songs that have the opportunity to be the most singable, <laughs> they weren't really for me. But when I've listened to them over and over today, they've gotten a little bit closer, which is natural for that to happen, right? But it's the ones that sound like Hamilton songs. Because the songs that are in this that are more spoken word, plot driving, or delivering type of musical numbers, those don't necessarily all sound as samey. But they're not catchy, and that's the thing. Like That's what the hook was with Hamilton, is all those songs are catchy. They all have a rhythm and a melody and a chorus that is easy to commit to memory, and you want to like spit it out and just kind of go with the music or the ballad or whatever. There's just not as much of that in this one. And what is there does 
kind of call back and sound so much like that other musical. So it's a good thing that they're both awesome and the music is wonderful in both of them because I guess that works. <laughs> if it didn't, then it would be a real problem. Like if it was him trying to break out from a so-so musical, you know, history and he iterated the same exact way or whatever on the songs, then you'd probably be having a different reaction. And we'd be like, well, uh, he really needs to up his game and change it up because it didn't work the first time. It didn't work the second time. So you mentioned about his casting. That's interesting. That moves into this next topic, of, which is really just about the story and what you thought about it, because what we thought about it. There's a ton of themes going on here. There's so much family and community stuff. Community being probably the biggest driver for me was just getting to watch this group of people and their in the interworkings of their various relationships with each other. And so you have that, you have them chasing dreams, which is always a great storyline, something that we love. You have this, these serious issues though, like gentrification of their neighborhood, un undocumented immigrant challenges. You have parents who are, trying to see their kids succeed but maybe doing so in a way that is trying to drive what the child does versus letting the child decide for themselves which i think is a very real issue with many kids whether they're latino or not that's that's something very relatable for any parent uh, who has a child growing up could be there's something about the representation that has come up in the discourse about this film that I actually found really interesting. I saw it online. There were some Latino critics specifically who were criticizing the casting and talking about how everyone is white presenting and very light skinned. And that's not an accurate representation of those cultures and those areas, those ethnic groups. And there is a problem with Hollywood putting black skin in the lead and in the forefront at times. And so we really don't see that here. And and they're right. When I watched it around the second time, I realized that colorism is pretty strong in this one. I mean, with the exception of maybe Benny, everybody is super light. <laughs> the girls definitely are. Anthony Ramos is a lighter skinned brown. And I'm not going to comment on it because I very much more than this, because I'm not a Latino. But what I did appreciate from seeing this discourse online was that it, it opened my eyes to hey this is a progressive move forward i think for the industry for telling a story about latin immigrants and making it a blockbuster giving it the money to make it this bombastic thing and also have it be not political i didn't feel like it was ever political i felt like it presented realistic information that these communities deal with real problems that people might not be aware of without ever being preachy. I really liked the subtlety of that, especially with Sonny trying to be, you know, trying to go to college and being undocumented and the way you see his reaction to finding out that he might not be able to do that, man. It's like that ripped my heart out. Right. And the neighborhood just with the, the song powerless where, you know, the power goes out. And it stays out for, I think this is actually based on real, I was looking it up. There was an 18 hour blackout. It wasn't like six days or whatever it was in the movie, 
Uh, I couldn't find one that was that long, but there's definitely issues with these power outages in this neighborhood in New York. And are they important enough to people? Are they visible or, or are they just forgotten in a sense um, to, to help them? And so there's – and then and the other businesses, right, coming in and swooping in and trying to buy up the, the dispatch and buy up the – there's you know people coming in to buy up the cleaning place or whatever and charging more money and, and pushing the community out. And so you've got all of these things that these people or these immigrants are dealing with, and I loved the subtlety of how that was presented. But I also appreciated having that brought to my eyes to where I can acknowledge that this movie is great. For Latino representation, because it is so many Latin American actors and singers and people on screen creating this awesome piece of art, but at the same time acknowledge there's a ways to go and that it's more than just one. It's 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 a diversity. There's more to diversity than that. Right. It's It's more widespread and has to be considered. Um, as we continue to make stuff. And the more we make, the more opportunity there is for that. So I don't know, man. I, I really liked the storylines in this, and I liked the way that it handled Latin representation, and I adored the relationships in the movie. That The ones that stuck out to me were Benny. Benny is like my favorite character. I, I, I think Benny, I want to hang out with Benny. It's that simple. Like, I, I want to go to the pool with Benny. Uh, I want to go to the club with Benny. Benny is my guy. I thought he was amazing. He is so full of like life and care. And I don't know. He's just, there's something about him. He was mature and sweet and yet firm. Like the way he stood up to Nina's dad at the, the dinner. And he's like, Kevin, listen to her. Like you, you need to shut up and listen to your daughter. I just, I loved everything about that character. And I liked the relationship between Sonny and it was Navi very, very much. I, I love that that cousin relationship, but he's kind of like a father figure. The scene where Sonny is urging him to flirt with Vanessa in the, in the bodega. I, that, that scene is like easily one of my favorite moments in the entire film. And he's like, whoa, my cousin would like yeah. you to. <laughs> when he it's, changes his voice, it's, it's so good. It's, it's so good. It's so funny. He's like... Dude, he dances like a drunk Cheetah Guevara. And I'm just, <laughs> just like, is well, tell your cousin. Like, I don't know. That whole moment is just indicative of their relationship, right? Um, and then, of course, I think everything with Abuela and the way that she is this force for good and for care in the community and takes care of everybody. And she touches all of their lives in this incredibly important way that it can't be replicated when she's gone. It's like, she's a dying era. Right. And when she passes on, like that doesn't necessarily exist if that community fractures and goes different ways. And so I loved all the interpersonal relationships in this film that, but yeah, I think all of those things landed for me and there's a lot going on in this. Well, there's definitely a lot going on. And at at the very least, if you could take something away from this, we get a really beautiful picture of what Latin American life is like in terms of community, not necessarily in a barrio or in Washington Heights, but we get a pretty immersive picture of 
what it means to be a part of something. And I had, I've had a chance over the last several years, my son plays soccer uh, with um, a little boy who he's actually going to start going to school with next fall. But uh, this kid comes from, uh, he has a Hispanic mom, American dad, American white dad. And when we first met them, he, <laughs> he would come out to soccer games and his mom, his dad, his brother at the time, he has a little baby sister now, his grandfather, who he calls Abuelo, which we love, <laughs> his abuela, who is the third grade teacher at his school, and like these seven or eight other like cousins and brothers and, and whatnot from this side of the family. We called it his entourage, Aiden's entourage. And when we finally got comfortable enough hanging out with his family, we would jokingly say, yeah, we, we, we see you guys come in and he's got like 15 people <laughs> for this like U6 <laughs> game, right? And it's beautiful. And as we've gotten to know them, that kind of culture, we see little pockets of that culture um, his grandfather, Carlos, uh, wants Carson to call him Abuelo because we love the fact of what that means, this, this connection of grandfather. And they care so deeply for us. Uh, my wife and I were talking about how we wanted to really be deliberate this next fall with Carson going to school with him to be more involved not only in the school but with this particular family because we've only known them during soccer season. And so part of that is fueled by the fact that they care so deeply for us, not only on an emotional level and they want to make sure that we're cared for on the soccer field, but they're both, you know, that family is a family that loves Jesus. And so they are, we're connected in that way even more so. But what we see is this beautiful picture of Latin American life inside this family that we get to hang out with. And I, I saw pockets of that in this musical. I was like, Oh Yeah. I know about that when when we when we hear uh, Uznavi talk about Abuela, I was like, oh, Abuela, yeah, like Abuelo, yeah, I can't hit that. And yeah, part of me got really excited because I was like, man, I, I touched on some of that. Uh, we've we've gotten little pictures and snapshots of this in our in our real life, and I think what made In the Heights so appealing for me is that what we saw on screen was reflective of what my wife and family have experienced from this other family. And so it felt very genuine. It didn't feel like, hey, we need some Latin American representation, so let's let's find – oh, you know what? Lin-Manuel Miranda, he's been pretty successful. Let's take his musical and let's throw it on the big screen because we need to find representation. Maybe that was motivation. Sure, okay, whatever. But I think more so you can throw representation on the screen all day. But if it doesn't feel authentic, if it doesn't, if it feels like it's representation, that's when you start losing your audience. Because then you start getting critics who are like, well, they're not black enough. Well, they're not Latin enough. I mean, look, as a man who loves West Side Story, obviously that would not play today with the way that they use a white person to portray a Latin American person. And I... I appreciate that for sure. I appreciate the fact that we get to see this picture. We get to hear this story that has very real elements of struggle, dreams, love, community, all wrapped up into two and a half hours. 
And at the end of the day, it's equally as entertaining as it is educational, which it should be. It should be entertaining first, but you walk away feeling like, I know a little bit more, I think. Or at the very least, it makes me want to ask, not was this musical accurate, but maybe going back to my Latin American friends and saying, hey, I watched this and they said this. What does that mean? Do you know about that? Or is that something completely different? Like, is there, are there subsections of the Latin American community just like when we go over to Asia and we see 15 to 20 different languages that aren't just Chinese or Japanese. I mean, there are just multitudes of culture that are so diverse in that regard. So at the very least, watching a movie like this gets me curious about what's life like within a community. And we get pictures of it, and it feels authentic based off of what we've experienced. There were times, I think, where the point was made when it came to some of the persecution and there were times when it dipped a little bit into, let me just bring that home a little bit more. And it, it, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way because I was picking up on it. I was picking up on the fact that um, Vanessa was struggling at Stanford because of where she came from. And then it was sort of reinforced at the dinner table. I got searched. Well, okay. That is not, a false statement felt a little out of place for me to hear that. doesn't make it inauthentic by any means. It just felt like the little kind of, let me just give you an explanation point about what you need to be feeling. And, uh, but, you know, I thought, I believe it was, oh, I forget. Was it, no, it was, it wasn't Vanessa. Was it Nina? That that was Nina, but Sorry, I figured, my, yeah. my bad. Yeah. So Vanessa, what I thought was really well done was when she was turned down for housing to get the apartment yep. uptown. I thought that was a fantastic scene. In fact, I looked at Krisha and I said, did they just say four times the rent as a down pay- as a deposit? That's not like, bad. If you think about it, I mean, not, I say that's not bad. I say that's, it doesn't, that's the thing is it doesn't feel that bad to me. It doesn't feel that unrealistic, but that's because of I'm used to middle class, right? Where sure. that's the, and that's what they're trying to get at. Cause I did the math too. And I was like, well, Okay, let's say $1,200, right, times uh-huh. 40. Well, that's only $48,000 sure. or something a year. Like, yeah. I mean, goodness gracious, yes, we make that. But this is the late 90s, and I bet you that apartment was not $1,200. Like, that apartment was probably two grand or something like that. And so mm-hmm. then you're talking about like 80 grand sure. a year, and you're talking about they live in the Heights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so their economy is lower, and that was the point they were making, and, I, and it did hit for me. Yeah. So, okay. And, and that makes sense. I guess for me, I thought that that was a great balance of a punch of making that point. And it's fine. It's good. I, I think being able to do that in a way that doesn't feel overly forced allows me to stay in the moment without feeling like I'm being talked to like, hey, we just want you to make sure that you've seen, see this, that you understand this. That scene felt more fluid than the scene with Nina where she said what she did didn't take away from that actually happening. But I felt like I was lost at that point because the pacing sort of slowed down. I was like, Oh wait, I've just kind of gotten jarred a little bit. So I'll tell you, I think the difference in those two scenes and I could see why it would hit, it could hit differently for you. The Vanessa scene with the apartment is highlighting an issue that is community based and their community is Latin and therefore it is racially 
related, but it is tangential. In that moment, Nina is not being there's not racism being expressed direct or sorry to Vanessa. There's not racism being expressed by the woman who is renting the apartment to Vanessa. She's not saying I'm not going to rent this to you because you're Latin and because of your skin color or because of your economy. She's it's, it's kind of on the side, right? Like if her parents happened to make that money, she would get that rent rent. Right. But it's, they don't because of her community. So like, it's kind of an expected thing. Whereas the scene with Nina at the dinner table is point blank. They're saying she was targeted to be searched in her dorm room because of her heritage and because of her skin color. Sure. And so I know the point that they're trying to make is I don't really love the particular example of the point because, frankly, I think realistically any roommate in that situation probably would get searched. But I get what they're trying to say. But it's yeah. but that one is like point blank. This is racial where the other one is this is tangentially racial. <laughs> it's It's racial in the sense of like. But it's not direct. You know, it's indirect. Sure. Direct or indirect aside, if the point is the same, the directness of it was slightly off-putting for me because it almost made me feel like, hey, we don't think you're smart enough to necessarily get that she was uncomfortable at school. And there was probably some some like cultural stuff that people didn't like and that she was being targeted to come in and, and make that comment. True or not, which I mean, I'm not, I don't, you know, I believe her and believe the character it happened. But to reinforce it by saying, if you didn't know already that I was uncomfortable, this is the reason why. You've already kind of shown me from an audience perspective that there is some cultural bias going on by showing us the scene with Vanessa. Like, we already know that. And I think it's set up really well to say, hey, look, there is a differentiation, there is a way of looking at one culture versus another that needs to kind of be equalized in some capacity. To me, I already kind of got that early on and I knew that was going to be subtext. And when it became text and not subtext, I think that's when it kind of threw me off. I didn't need the text. I already knew the subtext. And so the punch kind of made me feel like we don't really feel like you're getting it. So we're going to make this point. But Apart from that, I thought the entire story was really, really great. I love those relationships that you mentioned. By far, uh, Usnavi and, uh, and, and Sonny were my favorite pairing because of what you just said. I think that there's a genuine brotherly, cousinly <laughs> love that they both have. There's this fantastic scene where Usnavi is – you know, he's expressing his sort of affection for Vanessa. And I want to say Sonny makes a comment about, hey, you can have this. You don't have to forget about your dream of of the Dominican Republic. It's okay to have this. It's okay to enjoy this right now. And, of course, that scene that you mentioned earlier where his voice goes completely deep. And he he wants this for him. And there's this kinship that they both have where they, they want to take care of one another. So it's like big brother, little brother, it's cousins. But even this idea that 
you don't have to be related by blood to be loved and cared for intimately. I mean, there's a, a passage in scripture that talks about that where Jesus says, who are my brothers? Who is my mother? It's these people right here. And he, it's a very deliberate kind of ideology when you reach out to friends and you say, you know what? I love you like a brother. I, you, you loved me like a mom or like a dad. And it's the way in which people love one another and care for each other deeply that helps them define those roles. I mean, look, my parents are the only grandparents that Carson's really around, but we have other older men and women that deeply care for him and they are like grandparents to him because they pour into his life in a way that matters. And I think that Abuela is that for the community. She pours herself into each one of these lives in a way she's not trying to get her own. She's just like, look, I do it because it's, it, I'm compelled to. This is who I am supposed to be. And if we don't pull anything else out from this in the time and space that we're living in, it's that we need more Abuelas around us. We need more men and women who just deeply care for people in a way that gets beyond hashtags and hot takes and I'm going to sweep in and save you. No, it's just about what can I do for you? How can I help you? How can I make you your day a little bit better? And I think she represents that in, in a way that we don't see a lot on the big screen. And I think that's one of the big punches of this film is her. I think she is one of the anchors, even though she's not the main character. Obviously, Uznavi is the one that's carrying the narrative for the most part. But I think she anchors this entire thing in a way that's completely beautiful and and very much an important thing that we need in uh, in our world today. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with that one little bit. One plot point that I have a question about is the lottery, because I had a little bit of an issue with this. It's culturally understandable so i think we're trying to make the point or try you know we're using this idea that you know everybody in the community wants to hit it big and they have these dreams and they they have this idea the song you know 96 g's what would you do with 96 g's and they all have this idea of how they would get out of this place in order to have a better life or a different life and so they're all buying lottery tickets hoping to hit it big and be able to chase their dreams. Very understandable. The fact that someone wins, it's a little weird to me because in the end, that money helps them accomplish things that they would not necessarily be able to. I I think like renovating the store in a, in a way now does maybe I'm misunderstanding. Do you remember, does the money all go to sunny though? I don't think it does. I think it's split. Like, yeah, I I can't remember what happens. So if he if he puts it in a trust for Sonny like he talks about, and the money goes to lawyer fees for Sonny, then I'm cool with it. If the money is what helps him get the bodega renovated and allows them to let Vanessa create this this uh you know, I don't know why I can't think of the word, this fashion line and run it out of the bodega, then I think it's a little unrealistic and a kind of betrayal of the whole 
reality here. So maybe mm-hmm. that's not what happens. I could be reading it wrong. I know he has the conversation with the lawyer at the end mm-hmm. and he talks about like, are you sure it could take everything and still not work out? And he says, I want to do it. So anyway, maybe just strike that from the conversation. Anywho, <laughs> let's get to the actual fun part of this. What would you do with 96 G's? Because everybody in this movie sings about what they would do. And there's a great Lord of the Reference re- song uh, in that song, by the way, which is, is. <laughs> Yes, I loved it. So good. Also, that was one of the great musical numbers that had the uh, the graphic design. In, yeah, it's in one the of era. the ones that specifically, yes. I, did. I thought that was so much fun, too. Yeah, very much fun. I, first of all, let me just say I would probably buy the pool that they all hung out at. That's a fantastic pool. That community pool is just amazing. But I think for me, I would probably open up a restaurant. I have learned to appreciate over the last year the art of dining, both from a customer and a serving standpoint, being able to build relationships and have similar, like the same friendly faces coming in each week. We are that for a couple of people that we uh, eat pizza uh, at their restaurant once a week. And I think opening a restaurant and having kind of like that cheers atmosphere where everybody knows your name and you have this atmosphere of camaraderie. Uh, People can come in and feel like they're comfortable, like they have um, the end of their week. They're going to come in and have a beer, enjoy some pasta. I don't know what kind of restaurant it would be, but I love that idea. And if I could open not even a chain, but open up this restaurant that is local to our area where it would just flourish and be a place where people feel not only great about the food, but about the atmosphere and the people that are taking care of them. I think that's, uh, that's what I would do. That's awesome. That's, that's very caring and communal. What, what and would you do? Mine's very selfish. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think about like chasing your dreams, right? Yeah. Like what would, what would, what would my dream be? And I'm also going to sort of, project and say 96 G's in 1999 is probably a lot more now. So I'll tell you what I think I would do. I would pay off the debt first, right? I would, the first thing you would do is you would get completely debt free. And then I honest to goodness think I would quit my job and I would spend the next year because I would be sustained for a year with whatever this amount left was easily. And I would focus on creating the podcasting, you know, world that I want, whether, you know, of both movies and video games. And I would, I would pour everything I had into creating something that could be financially stable and sustainable when I was done with this period of a year, year and a half, whatever it took. Right. But I would do that. I would, you know, have myself an area in the house that's actually got a green screen so that I can have somewhere to, put a background up and I wouldn't, you know, need to worry about where my dog is and I'd have a soundproof a room. Um, and I would just create podcasts in a, in a way that there's a, there's a great gaming site that did this called kind of funny that I listened to where it was just three or four people from IGN who had a dream of creating content themselves and they left and they took a shot at their dream. Right. And they all had these skills and I would want to find some people with similar skills to do that, and I would merge the things I love, movies and games, and I would do something similar and try to create something that had enough 
enjoyment out there that people would want to support it and it would allow me to keep doing it. So that's what I would do. That would be my dream. And I wouldn't even have to leave the country or the city to do it. There you go. Just, yeah, yep. keep that dream alive. That's right. 96 G's, all for you, bud. 96 G's. Yeah, anyway. Uh, <laughs> speaking of 96 G's, this is a musical. And so before we move on to end this thing up, what is your favorite number? What are some of your favorite numbers and why? That one, I will say straight up, is my favorite song in the movie. I love that one. I love the different styles of the music that flow through it as different people are singing. And that number combined with the absolutely phenomenal choreography, like that number is why I go watch these movies on a big screen and why the bombastic production of this is so memorable. Like you said, the pool, it's, it's astounding. Like it is a freaking awesome, awesome number and scene the way it's shot there's that's where one of the two La La Land specific references come in. I there's some people who do like kind of side flips into the pool that are almost identical to the way that the guys jump in the pool in La La Land at the party. The other one is the surreal song between Benny and Nina where they're singing on the balcony and they start like dancing on the side of the building, which I absolutely love. And that's very reminiscent of the La La Land um, song where they load up into the observatory so i liked both of those uh, specifically those numbers but the ninety-six thousand as a song was really really just that's the most memorable for me i think that and probably in the heights just because in the heights grew, grew on me over time lyrically i don't remember it much of it but i just remember the, the tune the rhythms of in the heights mm-hmm. um and the and the fact that it's really like the, that kind of prototypical introduction musical song and it works and then you get a reprise of it later on. It worked really well for me as well. Yeah. 96,000 stands out to me in a total agreement. I think everything about that, it's the, it's the height of the musical in terms of the performance, the music that I enjoyed the most was Benny's dispatch. I thought the way you get introduced to him and, of course, using the what would seem to be Hamilton type of lyricism combined with how he hands it off to her and she does her own thing. So you get again, you get this great dissonance where you have this one rhythm and then he sees Nina and he hands the the microphone off to her and you get a sense of how they both did the work, you know, how he how he calls out the traffic and whatever he's doing and then oh yeah she used to work here and so she does her thing and i love that i love that we get to see how it was and how it is and how it they both complement each other the other one for me was blackout and i thought that being able to you know this was kind of the turning point of the musical it's what it was the event that was being led up to you know two days before the blackout 88 degrees and vice and you know and so on and so forth but this is where i think you got a lot of cool what i would call the west side story moment where you have two people singing together you have uh, a small group of people singing together and then a, it balloons up into just these large groups of people who are really just doing what they can do when the city's blacked out when there's nothing to do and they're firing off these fireworks i love that and um 
it's, I think when you couple that with all of these characters coming into the apartment and every time one of them comes in, it's like, Hey, you're here. Yeah. You know, it's like, you found your way back home all while this musical number is happening. It's just really beautiful. It's chaos, but it's beautiful chaos because you see all the choreography. So it's timed perfectly. It's done purposefully, but you still get that sense of, man, there's no, there are no lights on in the city. What are we going to do? And if you were living in a musical where there was a blackout in your city, this is probably what would happen. People would just dance frantically, smile, have a good time, try to get back to their loved ones and then celebrate when they do. And so for me, I think those two stood out to me apart from 96,000. I think that was the perfect number, but these were a good close second and third for me. Good deal. Yeah. I, Benny's Dispatch would be on my short list as well. I thought that that one was just absolutely fantastic. And because I love Benny so much, it it was perfect. And for all the reasons that you just stated. Also, before we end or go to Connecting Point, just so you know, I loved the little joke or I guess the reason of how Uznavi got his name. That made me very happy <laughs> being uh, a sailor and a veteran about, here. I thought about you, it's, Oh my God. Ashlyn and I looked at each other and just grinned so big and like slightly, we were like rolling our eyes, but grinning at the same time because it's just one of those so stupid and yet completely understandable from an immigrant perspective, right? And, and very unique in a way. And so it went for, we went through all of this progression in this one moment of that's so dumb to that is freaking awesome to, okay, I get it to what? And, you know, like it was just, it was wonderful. So if you ever get another that. cat, you should name it Uznavi. That'd be you know great. what? I, I should. I really, you're right. There are a lot of Lord of the Rings characters left, though. My, there's like, I need. <laughs> You're not going to be a Lord of the Rings cat lady. <laughs> I'm going to need a lot of pets, okay, <laughs> to, to cover that series. Okay. Last on our list is the connecting point, right? Yes. Yeah. Connecting point. So, uh, <laughs> do you have a connecting point, Patrick? Are you talking to me like a robot for a particular reason? No, I was trying to buy. I was trying to buy time, and I thought for some reason that was. I don't know what it was. <laughs> I didn't. Um, I think the whole movie itself was pretty emotional, and it wasn't that I couldn't pick one thing. I think for me, the no, the musical numbers, in and of themselves, kind of brought me into it, and so I didn't want to necessarily answer that from the last question. So I don't technically have one. That's fine. Not a problem. Well, I have what I guess would kind of be two. One and the biggest one is Abuela Claudia when she is passing away. And really there's a section of the film that really encompasses this whole thing. And it starts, it's the blackout. Honestly, it's like when the community starts working during the blackout to use fireworks and find these various ways to light up the night sky that's literally a lyric in one of the songs. And then part of this connecting point would be Benny saying, listen, I got to go to the dispatch because the lights, traffic lights are out and cars are going to run at each other and I need to be there somehow. And him going to dedication to that, the way, and it really was symbolic, I think, of the whole movie, just how each person was willing to sacrifice their own self at various times to, to the benefit of the community. And so seeing him do that and be innovative and using his cell phone 
and the regular phone and all these things. And then watching Kevin come to him and do it alongside him after they had last seen each other having that fight over Nina's future. That was just it was a beautiful moment. And again, putting things aside and realizing like there's such a bigger thing here, right? Like we need to take care of each other and we can disagree. It's It's very familial, even though these two people are not related in a direct way. And I just thought that that was a beautiful moment there. And then it leads all into Abuela Claudia, who is dying, which is really sad, by the way. And she sings this song, uh, Paciencia y Fe, I guess, is how, is the name of the song. I probably am butchering it, so I apologize. And she essentially is singing about her life, and she's telling us her story. And it's framed in the context of her singing to her mother at most of the song and kind of recounting things. And it is just – it is beautiful. It, it is a, I don't necessarily love the song itself. It's really interesting. I don't dislike it by any means. I'm saying it doesn't stand out to me as like, oh, that's my favorite song. I just want to put that on and listen to it. But I think in the storytelling capacity, it is perfect. And the way they represent her walking through this kind of purgatory, going through the subway and her her life as she you know is immigrates to America and the, the cold and the various experiences she had and ultimately coming to this choice that she has to make of like do i want to let go and and be done with this life or do i want to fight and go back and feeling like it's time to move on it was really emotional for me and just i think an incredible incredible moment and just how meaningful that is to every single person like that she like i said earlier she is the spoke in that entire city area and she touches every single person and so it has such a wide range of connective impact on everybody's lives and i just i love the way it was represented or presented to us and the actress in particular i think is just phenomenal in this role her name is olga merides and i'm gonna i'm on the boat of like give this actress give olga merides a supporting actress nomination at the Oscars. Like this is the kind of role and performance that I want to see get represented there. She actually originated this same role in the Broadway musical. She's one of the very few. I don't think there are any, I don't even know if there's anybody else that comes over and recounts her role. And I, I think that that was such a perfect choice, right? To have her do that because you can't come out of this movie not either a thinking about someone in your own life who fulfills that role in your family or sad and wishing you had someone like that in your family um and understand but either way you fully understand and, and acknowledge her importance and her value and she's just a beautiful human being <laughs> frankly yes yeah, and is. so it was really it was really sad um and lovely at the same time and so that was all in all, my big connecting point. It's a nice little coda that leads us into the back half of the musical, I think. And uh, and, and Blackout is a great kind of entry point into that moment. So we get to this loud, and it slowly kind of gets into what you're talking about, where there's chaos, but it's quiet. And, and yeah, I think it, it makes a nice little smooth transition into the back half of the, the musical that 
that keeps the pacing pretty uh, pretty smooth throughout. So good stuff, man. I like that. Well, that'll wrap up this episode of Feelin' Film. Thank you, everyone, as always, for taking the time to listen to the show. If you have some insight into this conversation or really anything movie-related, find us on social media, or better yet, hit us up in our discussion group on Facebook. Aaron, thank you for another great conversation, my friend, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.